podcast. I want to answer an email uh, here at the beginning because it kind of helps explain what I'm doing here on the podcast and how it came to be. Several people have asked this question and I appreciate all the emails and the comments and even the critiques. I do appreciate all, all the anything anybody uh, wants to comment on um, and you can send it to podcast at thinkinggod.com. Appreciate that. Well, the reason I started the podcast is fairly simple. Uh, in the world we live in, no matter how important we believe a connection to a higher power is. It often takes a back seat to whatever we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. This is especially true if we've embraced faith for many years or, or some of us in many, for many decades. I am a child of the Jesus movement, and in the years that followed, the product of two seminaries and more than a few church staff positions, and as I close in on the beginning of my sixth decade, my, familiar, my familiarity with the things of God slowly seem to have made my daily consciousness of all that that entails uh, seem to leave me going days uh, or months barely considering anything beyond that which is sort of academic, dogmatic, or even just automatic uh, in terms of my faith and my hope. And when things started coming along, I was just leaning back on the years of, uh, of discussion and reading and studying. That happened even when I was serving my community and doing the kind of things that I knew that uh, were good to do, I often sort of drifted unconsciously away from the source of any reason for my desire to serve and in in retrospect sort of lost some of the uh, the, the benefit and joy in, in, in doing that. Um, I was still reading books, uh, especially those, and I still continue to look for those fresh perspectives and keen insights on faith and hope and listen to many, many podcasts, both in the gym and other places, by those who are taking their faith seriously in a pragmatic way that produces something beyond the idea of let's all escape hell and let's all try to keep God from being angry um, or some other incarnation of Anselm's Ransom Theory of Atonement where we're trying to assuage the wrath of God instead of taking our role in reconciliation and redemption seriously. Uh, I also found wisdom in the literature of the recovery movement and the emphasis on God consciousness and the aware, awareness of God in every moment, very much like Brother Andrew, I mean Brother Lawrence is practicing the presence of God. That such awareness that has always been a strong pull for me and has been more so in recent years. Uh, it's, for me, it's the call of a creator who liked what he brought forth by his word, breath, and his hand, and not something from an angry entity constantly creating rules and thinking about vengeance but one who is pulling me into a better future by thinking of a God who is and always has been at work in reconciliation and redemption and one who is willing to have me joining this process, join him in this process, which mostly requires that consciousness that the kingdom of God is at hand. Most of the voices on the Thinking God podcast will be from the Christian tradition because most of my contacts are there, though some will be bringing ideas in of God consciousness, faith, and hope from a different perspective, and I'm really looking forward to that. My goal is to learn and find encouragement and engagement from every speaker on the podcast, every guest on the podcast, and I hope that comes through. And today's guest is one such voice. Greg Boyd is an internationally recognized theologian and preacher, teacher, apologist, author. He has been featured on the front page of the New York Times, the Charlie Rose Show, CNN, National Public Radio, BBC, and numerous other television radio stations. He has a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary and MDiv from Yale, and his BA is in philosophy from the University of Minnesota. 
He was a professor of theology for 16 years at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he received Teaching Excellent Award and Campus Leadership Award. No surprise there. He's co-founder of Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, where he serves as senior pastor, and he speaks to thousands each week. He has a podcast. He is author or co-authored 20 books and numerous academic articles, including his best-selling and award-winning Letters from a Skeptic and his recent books, uh, Repenting of Religion and the Myth of a Christian Nation, are really worth your time. I'll take my word for it. His apologetic writings and public debates on historical Jesus and the problem of evil have helped many skeptics embrace faith in his writings and sem- and seminars on spiritual transformation have had a revolutionary freeing impact on the lives of thousands of folks. His website, Renew, that's R-E-K-N-E-W, is talks about rethinking everything you thought you knew. It is a wonderful resource. I highly recommend it. And in, in his words, it is for resourcing a revolution. I am grateful for his place at the table and for his dogged pursuit of thinking about God in ways that matter and sometimes ways that aren't popular and don't find a lot of uh, acceptance among some of his peers. And I also want to say he is a drummer. And this interview picks up with a discussion of his drumming talents and his uh, work in his band, Not Dead Yet. Here's Greg Boyd. So we just started, you know, jamming around in my basement. And uh, I started getting back into it. The whole goal was to just try to recover a little bit of what I did when I was, you know, 20 years old. But now I'm actually doing stuff that I couldn't do when I was 20. And so that really feels good. I'm I'm 59 now, and I can out-drum myself when I was 20. What do you think about that? That's that's great. You're in a band, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Dead Yet, it's called. Uh, We just uh, do nonprofit gigs, you know, raise money for people in Haiti. We, We play at bars. And uh, raise money for kids in Haiti, so it's a it's it's a it's a cool kind of a thing. Well, that's great. Well, I was looking through your bio, and it looks like you've been a part of almost every tradition in the faith somewhere along your spiritual path, from Roman Catholic, Pentecostal, Orthodox, now Anabaptist. Um, how am I? How has that, along with, of course, your your Yale and Princeton graduate degrees, helped shape where you are today? Well, I'm sure you know you pick up things all along the way. You know, I mean, I, I, I started my Christian walk. I was raised Catholic, but I lost my faith. Uh, I don't know if I even had faith, but I uh, became a Christian when I was, when I was 16 and um, in this real kind of out there Pentecostal church. Uh, but I still have some of that, you know, I, I, I that's some of the uh, charismatic worship I really like and, and, and get into and, and the gifts of the spirit. I uh, still, you know, practice, practice that. Um, and then, you know, I've been influenced by more, most recently the Anabaptist tradition has uh, really been, a, a, I just sort of evolved into that kind of went through standard evangelicalism and now evolved into Anabaptism. But yeah, so it, it all, it, you know, forms you in different ways, but also I think when when you have a, a, a kind of broad background like that, it, it keeps you from from a, ever mistaking your map for the territory. You're always aware that that there's other ways of looking at things, and you come to appreciate different perspectives. So it keeps you from getting too rigidly dogmatic. Not that I don't have some strong convictions about things, but uh, uh, it, it makes you more gracious towards those who think, see things differently. Well, uh, since you mentioned that, you started out as a scholar before you were a pastor and a professor. Uh, how, how has that uh, influenced your approach to the Bible? Because you have been through all these different things, and you were talking about moving from uh, evangelicalism to more of an Anabaptist approach. How has that changed, or has it changed your approach to the Bible? And 
Well, I've always believed, I've always been a pastor, even when I was a professor. Okay. Um, okay. For, for a long time, I did both. Um, and, and even before that, I would always be preaching in churches and stay very active in the church. And I think that that is absolutely vital. Uh, when, when, when theologians stop doing their theology in the context of the church, that's where they float out into this ivory tower of La La Land. And I, I think that, that, the key, that uh, an ecclesial community is the right context in which we ought to be thinking about God, wrestling with questions and things like that. Um, and so uh, it's really helped me stay rooted, I think. Uh, and, and to you know, kind of keep your, your, your thumb on, on, the, on the kind of pulse of the Holy Spirit, what, what God's doing today and, and, and things of that sort. So I always think, you know, yes, we need really strong scholarship. Let's get you know, deep into that but always have it in, in, in a passion for Christ and embedded in the real life of the church. Yeah, I came up in a tradition. I mentioned when we were starting, uh, you know, in Southern Baptist tradition, a couple of their big seminaries or one big one, one small one that uh, seemed at the time when I was there, and of course this was late 70s, um, more interested in what it says than what it meant. There seems to be much more of a movement now uh, among people like you and some of the others. We mentioned Peter Inns earlier that seem to be approaching the scriptures and what does it mean not as much as what does it say yeah well you know it, it, it's uh, uh, a lot of people don't know this but but um the way that that uh, especially more conservative christians read the bible today really comes out of the enlightenment um where you know secular humanist scholars uh decided that we should treat the bible the same way we treat every other ancient book and and apply the same philological rules to it and and so they came to the conclusion that the the text can only mean uh what it originally meant you know the, the original meaning is the only meaning and and uh at first, that was like that, that's not at all. That's not the way the church has ever read the Bible up to that point. We're talking. This is now in the 16th century. Uh, the church always believed that that um, yes, it, since it, it, the primary meaning or the anchoring meaning should be what it, what the original audience would have understood. But because God also is the author of this work, uh, text can have multiple meanings. And 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 throughout church history, they've always. Been able to, in fact, the faith was really held together by that means, by, by being able to see things in writings that the original authors couldn't have seen. But then that got lost with the Enlightenment and, and with the secular approach to Scripture. And then the church gradually adopted that. Uh, it, well, there's a lot of folks today, it's called the Theological Interpretation of Scripture Movement, TIS, and uh, who are saying we need to recover the ancient way of reading Scripture. And because uh, um, there's so much that is lost. When, when we don't uh, hear what God might have to say to us that goes beyond what the original author uh, could have consciously intended. Do you think that the church adopted that from the Enlightenment because it was easier to control? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I've never thought about that question. Um, it, it, I think it was mainly because that, that, you know the seminar started to teach this. It, it became the only, the only academically respectable way of reading the Bible. Um, all the other ways were kind of looked down upon and pooed, and and so when pastors would go to seminaries to get trained, that's what they got trained with, and uh, uh, you know, I, 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 that part I'm, I'm sure of. Whether there's other motives for it, I can't say. Okay, what is it? What do you see as the purpose of the Bible? The point is to Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus says that he is the life of Scripture. Uh, Moses wrote about him. And then in Luke 24, uh, you know, after the resurrection, he, he says he opened up all the Scriptures and, and showed how they uh, all bear witness to him, especially to his sufferings. And so ultimately, the, the fundamental purpose of the Bible is to point us to and bring us into a relationship uh, with Jesus Christ, and uh, especially with Jesus Christ and his sufferings, where we see on the cross uh, the, the self-sacrificial character of God revealed. Uh, this is what God truly is like. And so he's the definitive revelation. You know, in, in, in Hebrews, it talks about how, uh, you know, in the, in the past, God spoke through prophets and, and various means and sundry times. But in these latter days, he spoke through his own son, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact likeness of his very being. Um, and so Jesus Christ is a summation of, of he's a culmination summation of, of all of God's revelation. And so he's the, un, the all surpassing revelation. Uh, I think all of our view of God should be anchored in him. And in all the scripture is intended to point to him in different ways. It all bears witness to him. So uh, I noticed I've watched several of your sermons getting ready for this. Uh, one recently is, had a lot of uh, astronomy in it, actually. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, that, that, just get that last week. Right. The mind-blowing universe we live in. Yeah. Uh, taking that approach to Scripture, how do you bring that to the pulpit every week as a pastor of a church? Tell people about your church, first of all. I should have said something earlier. Oh, it's Woodland Hills Church in uh, Maplewood, Minnesota. Um, and it's a... Uh, well, what, we're strongly Anabaptists now, uh, passionately committed to uh, loving enemies and nonviolence and those sorts of things, because our, our view of God is based on, uh, completely based on Jesus Christ and what he reveals about God. Um, uh, but we, we, you know, it's, we, we combine pietistic and evangelical elements and charismatic elements as well. Uh, we are increasingly diverse because uh, diversity is a real uh, strong emphasis of ours. Uh, and it's a real vibrant happen, happen in place. I, I, I feel really honored to be the pastor there. So, so when you bring that approach, you're talking about everything points to Jesus. Uh to the to your sermons, how do you how do you do that? Because a lot of people, you know, the, the old method was more just basic, a lot of expository sentence by sentence kind of things. But you seem to be bringing a lot of other things into your your teachings. Well, I I, I, I do it just by doing it. I mean, I, I you're gonna have trouble finding a sermon where I don't have some mention. I mean, there may be a lesson that the passage contains that's, you know, important in and of itself, but but insofar it, it, as it's true and it's about God's will for us and God's character and all that, uh, it's going to be perfectly exemplified in, in, in Jesus Christ. And so I just I just see Christ in, in all of this. It's like Luther said, he says, I find nothing in Scripture except Christ crucified. Now, he wasn't totally consistent with that, but he had the right principle. Um, uh, it, it all bears witness to him. Yeah, Luther was great at in his writings at the right principles on a lot of things. <laughs> he was. Yeah, he, he, uh, I, I, I know of no theologian in history who could get it so right and so wrong in, in the same breath. It was, he was just kind of amazing like that. You know, when he was when he was good, he was really good. When he was off, he was really off. <laughs> Welcome to the human race, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Your ministry is called Renew, and that's with K E N E W, um, and it calls for the rethinking of everything you thought you knew. What does that mean? How do those of faith need to rethink everything they thought they knew? Well, you know, it, it, there's a, a revolution going on, and Renew is just my ministry outside of Woodland Hills Church. Okay? Right. So it's kind of too focused in my ministry. Um, and there's a movement going on around the world where people are, are uh, 
you know, the, the old model of Christendom was dying. Christendom was, was the, the kind of invention of the fourth and fifth centuries when the church inherited this political power and decided to get in bed running the state with, with the state and running the empire. And it morphed Christianity in some spectacularly terrible ways. Um, but it's the model of the church triumphant. And, and so you have a triumphalistic Jesus carrying a sword and triumphalistic God, and the church is going to triumph, and they thought they're going to kind of conquer the world for Jesus. Um, well, that's been the dominant model of the church from the 5th century up until very recently, uh, and, but it's now crumbling, uh, which is, I think, a good thing. In Europe, it's almost completely dead. Uh, the last stronghold is America, uh, where you still pe- have people, Christians, thinking that they're doing God's will by trying to get secular power and enforce their will on others. That's a Christendom model. But but uh, as, as Christendom has been crumbling, uh, people have been, it, it, it's it had the advantage of, of uh, uh, helping people kind of see the real gospel and, and, and really catch a vision for a Jesus-looking God, raising up a Jesus-looking people to change the world in a Jesus kind of way. And, and, um, uh, and so everything's being rethought. And, and so I, Renew exists just to be sort of a catalyst of that and then to help network people who are you know, waking up to this, this vision. People seeing how you know, Christianity has just been so fused with nationalism uh, for centuries. And you know, the cross and the flag have been side by side and how so much of, of, of what Jesus was about gets missed uh, when we are reading the Bible just through our cultural lenses. And so it's it's a real exciting thing. I, I think we're at the honestly, Greg. I think we're at the cusp of um, a a seismic shift in 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 uh, the church. I, I I suspect. I don't know this for sure, but I suspect we're at the cusp of a reformation that will make the Protestant Reformation look like peanuts by comparison. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Do you think that the recent election results are going to play into that? I mean, it, they placed most of the evangelicals, at least in the survey, squarely in the Trump. Donald Trump. And um, you've been a voice in the wilderness on this issue about evangelicals being co-opted by that lure of power and celebrity or attention for a very long time. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's um, well, throughout the 90s, I, I just got clearer and clearer about what the kingdom of God is. And the clearer I got about the kingdom, of, what the kingdom of God is, the more I saw how radically different it is from all versions of the kingdom of the world, America, Russia, you name it. And, and that's when I began to really see just how fused uh, nationalism and and uh, uh, Christianity had become, especially with the church in America. And yeah, so it's been kind of my clarion call that that we're supposed to come out from among them. And our way of changing the world is is not the world's way of changing the world. You know, we're supposed to be following the example of Jesus and washing people's feet and praying for the sick and feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and, and housing the homeless. And instead, we fight over how how government should do that. You know. Um, which we find that no precedent for that in the New Testament at all, and so uh, I've I've just been harping on this this bandwagon. You know, it's time for the church to start being the church and just start doing the stuff that God calls us to, and and stop trying to grab the power to enforce our will on others. We're supposed to win hearts, um, and not 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 coerce behavior, and so uh, yeah, it's been a a, a real clearing call mine. I think it's becoming, uh, among a lot of folks, even more uh, of a call since we've got a president-elect who seems to be loading up his cabinet with generals, and you're talking about nonviolence. We seem yeah. to be headed towards a potential era where um, that's not going to be sort of the national flavor. Um, uh, yeah, it, well, it, it, it's never been the national flavor. 
Um, but uh, I don't know what the fallout of this will be, but I do know this, that that the worse things go for the culture, the more opportunity there is for the church. And so uh, as, you know, it could be that, and I don't know this, he could try to be a spectacular president, but, uh, you know, given his temperament and positions and stuff, we do have cause for concern. Uh, but but it, it, when if, if things start to go south in the culture, um, that it's an opportunity for the church to contrast with that all the more. We're supposed to be light in the darkness. And Paul describes this this, this world, he says, he refers to it as this present darkness, Ephesians 6.12. Um, and so uh, we're in a, in a world that is strongly oppressed by spiritual principles and powers. And uh, our job is, as, is to manifest the character of God, that beautiful, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing character of God um, that is light shining in the darkness. So I, I, I don't concern myself much with, uh, you know, the particulars of what is or isn't going to happen with, with, with Trump. Um, my hope is, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, wow. as that great hymn says. Yeah, uh, it's, you're, uh, Shane, uh, uh, Shane was saying that when he was on here not long ago. Um, I think you're right. And I think the other thing is that's easy to, to let slip by is that when Jesus was walking on this this uh, this earth, uh, the, the powers that be were really not that friendly towards what he was doing. So. No, no. And, and, and yeah, if, if you look at uh, you know, the, the, the Caesars back in his day weren't nice guys, you know, right. and, and none of the rulers were. And and in fact, under Nero, the Christians started being lit on fire and impaled on posts and fed to lions. Um, and so it, the idea that 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 uh, we should expect government to act Christian or something, I think, is 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 kind of misguided. Um what we should expect is for the church to act Christian. I'd be happy just with that. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, be Christ-like. Be you know, just live out the life of Christ. I, I I think Gandhi is right that if a fraction of Christians actually did that, uh, the world would be running to our doors. He said the world would be converted to you know, Christ almost overnight. And he, he wasn't a Christian, but uh, man, he he got the teachings of of, of Jesus down right. So yeah, that, that, my my whole focus now, my whole hope is on on the church being the church. Your your um, your approach to many of the things that I've read, and I, I read parts of two or three of your books getting ready for this, um, sound very much in some ways uh, politically and, and socially like Jim Wallace and folks on the left, and yet you were more conservative in your approach to some things as well. Um, have you had much dealings with, I mean, because there are some things in which you're completely aligned with the left on socially. Well, I, 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 but it's not because... See, it, it, I, I, I think it's a, it's a uh, comparing apples and oranges in some ways. Uh, to even like to say conservative or liberal in terms of politics, because I really think the kingdom is a third thing altogether. Um, if, it, if, 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 if acting Christ-like happens to agree with some policy or some position that a political thing has, fine. But that's that's incidental. Um, I, I don't think we should be trying to align ourselves with this party or that party at all. And that's where you know I, I part ways with Jim Wallace, and he's a friend of mine. I love the guy, and we talk about we've talked about this quite a bit. Had some public debates on it, but. Like I told him, you know, last time I saw him, it's like, uh, Jim, you, you agree that the church, he agrees that the church should lead with our moral authority more than our words. But he also agrees that we're not doing that, that the church, you know, if you define the church as 
the body of Christ that looks, that, that is a corporate version of Jesus' body when he was here on earth, that we're doing the same things that, that he did. Uh, if that's the definition of the church, well, then the church, to a large degree, doesn't exist, uh, not in America. And so I, I keep saying to him, if you agree the church doesn't exist, why are you writing books telling us how to vote? Uh, it, why not, let's pour all our energy into getting the church to be the church. And let the vote take care of itself. Who gives a rip what you do every four years? We vote every day with our life. Every decision you make is a vote. You're, 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 you're expressing what your values are, you know, and, and, and your influence on the world. That's what I am concerned with. What you put down on a ballot every four years or something uh, is, is neither here nor there. So, you know, people can weigh the merits of, of different philosophies on how you should, you know, help the poor in society and, and, you know, what's best for the economy and how to create jobs and, you know, the abortion issue and all of those things. You know, fine, let's discuss that, but do it in a civil way. But that's not the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is, is such that it ought to be the case that the most conservative political thinking person and the most liberal political thinking person could come together and, and, and talk about this if we want to. But but we know that our job is not to resolve those issues. Our job is to be the kingdom. And and so, like, you know, Jesus called Matthew, uh, who was a, a tax collector, and they were the conservative of the conservatives. And then he called Simon, and he was a zealot. And the zealots were the liberals of the liberals. In fact, we know that that sometimes the zealots would assassinate tax collectors because they hated them so much because the tax collectors worked for the Roman government. Uh, Jesus calls both of them. Uh, they're antithetical in terms of their political positions, and yet we don't read one word about that in the Gospels, which is significant. Uh, it, it, what it means is that when you have Jesus in common, your various political differences, however far apart they are, are utterly inconsequential. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I, uh, I think it's so important to keep the kingdom as a, a completely distinct thing. And, and those distinctions, uh, a lot of the folks I've had on and, and other folks I've talked to, uh, a lot of people keep going to the Matthew 25 list of, that where Jesus actually sort of separates who's doing it and who's not. Right. And, and the fact that both groups are asking the same questions. When did we see you? When did you need help? And the other one was just doing it. Yeah, that, that's a, a, a good point. You're right, but see, he's he's there talking about his followers. Okay, this is what the church is supposed to be doing. Feed the hungry, you know, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked. Um, that's what we're to be doing. Uh, he's not there saying that's what Caesar should be doing. And he's not saying this is what we should, you know, be trying to get Caesar to do. Now, if we can get Caesar to do that, fine, you know, but, but that's not part of our job as kingdom people. As kingdom people, our job is just to do it. You know, it's a little bit like this. We had a, uh, this is probably 10 years ago now, but uh, a school, and, and we're a, we, Woodland Hills is in a sec, second-tiered ur- urban environment, um, and, and there's a school close to us that was right in the city, and it was um, uh, underfunded. It was uh, getting really, uh, every year its testing was among the lowest in the state. There's talk about it being closed down. It had run down everything. Um, now, we could have debated about uh, who to vote for to take care of these problems of inner city schools. And and we undoubtedly would have had debates on that. Maybe we would have had a split. And people would have been calling each other stupid because, you know, our ideas are the best, so yours must be stupid. And we could that we'd buy into the polarization of the culture. But instead, we just said, what can we do to serve this school? And, and so we went over and we asked them, how can we help you? And they needed some new windows. They needed a new playground. They needed new painting and all this stuff. And so we just started serving them. And the beautiful thing is that as we started serving them, 
um, you know, people in the neighborhood saw it and they wanted to come and join on. You know, one guy you know, brought us shovels to help dig and another guy then brought a tractor and donated paint materials and, and then companies wanted to get on board with it. You know, everyone wants to get on board with something that's good happening. And uh, so it became a beautiful thing that now it glorified Christ rather than some political party. In fact, some people, uh, there's at least two people I know of, who, who started coming to the church because of that. And, and we still have like 50 people who uh, volunteer on a weekly basis uh, to help out with, uh, you know, reading and stuff like that. So that's the way the kingdom goes forward. I just, just do it. Yeah, you mentioned something that reminded me. Uh, when we're talking about the church just doing it and not looking to the government for anything, do you think the the sort of tax deductions churches get and things kind of keep us a little too co-opted? <laughs> Well, it, it could, uh, and it, it, the day may come to that. If, if uh, you know, right now the government wants to give you a tax break, fine, I'll take a tax break. But uh, I got to be very careful about any kind of strings attached to it. And right now, there there haven't been any strings except for these broad outlines, which the church should be doing anyways. Like, don't endorse a candidate from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Well, the church shouldn't be doing that in the first place. We've, we've got, we already have our president. <laughs> it's Jesus Christ, and and he never has to run for office. And so that's the one we should be endorsing. Every, every week or whenever we meet. But uh, um, but if, if there comes a point where they start to have more strings attached, we'll have to say, no, can't do that, and uh, let it go. You, you're In your book, Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty, there, it seems like in the last decade or so, more uh, discussion has come uh, come about. You and I kind of grew up in a, uh, an era of a, a lot of attention being given to um arguing about who is the most right. I mean, where you want, whatever you want to call it, apologetics, whatever else, uh, that there was a, a notion that needing to be right was, was pretty important. Do you think that that's sort of the need to be right has become a golden calf? Well, in some matters, it's, it's kind of odd though, Greg. Um, on the one hand, we, we're dealing with a kind of a postmodern culture where, um, uh, you know, the very idea of truth is being lost. You know, it's like your truth and my truth are, you know, you can have your truth, I have my truth. And it's, it's kind of total relativism. But on the other hand, you've got this rigidity, uh, especially on political matters and in some circles on religious matters, where uh, being right is a golden calf. Um, and, 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 and that becomes, I mean, it, it's literally an idol. Uh, where you get life and your sense of worth and your sense of well-being and being special before God and being a part of the in-group uh, and your sense of security, it comes from the fact that you convince yourself that you're right on these things. And and so other people then have got to be wrong. And and, and when, when that happens, then you you, you, you want to hold that your, your rightness is obvious. This is any intelligent person would, would see it this way. So that means you have to see those who disagree with you as either being uh, less intelligent or as not really wanting the truth. You know, they, they say they want the truth, but they're running from the truth or whatever. And so you start demonizing your opponents and uh, things get ugly very, very fast. And so, yeah, the part of that book, uh, Benefit of the Doubt, is to tear apart that idol. It's the idol of certainty, uh, where people think that faith is a matter of, is, you know, the, the, the more certain you are, uh, the stronger your faith is. So the, the, the less doubt you have, the stronger your faith is. And it, that's a psychological model of, of faith. Um, I, I argue that the biblical model of faith was is totally different than that. The biblical model of faith 
Well, they just weren't into their heads the way we are. You know, uh, their model of faith is covenantal, not psychological. And and by that I mean, uh, faith is is a matter of pledging your trust in somebody and pledging to be trustworthy in relationship to somebody. And and uh, and so it's a commitment to walk a certain way, to live a certain kind of life. How certain you are uh, is is really irrelevant so long as you're willing to make that commitment. No one's going around with a little psychological meter trying to measure how certain you are. And, and what is virtuous about being certain anyways? I mean, like, why would God put such a premium on, if you can make yourself certain enough that this proposition is true, then I'll save you. But if you can't, then you'll go to hell. Um, I mean, that stacks, the, that stacks the people who are good at that. I mean, the people I know, at least, who are best at that are people who are you know, either very simple or they're neurotic, you know? <laughs> they those people have no trouble believing, being certain about things. Um, and the people who have the hardest time with that are people who are, are naturally inquisitive and who ask questions and who, who realize that there's different ways of looking at things. And, and, and they, are, they, they always wonder, I might be wrong. And, and I always wondered, why would God stack the deck so strongly against intelligent people? It just this didn't make sense. But that's not the biblical model of faith at all. And I think that, that model of certainty uh, really trips Christians up in a lot of ways. Uh, it, it, it reeks a lot, as I spell out in the book, um, a lot of what people perceive as wrong with the institutional church is is anchored in that false view of certainty. So, for example, uh, polls show that uh, a good percentage of, of Americans uh, see especially evangelical Christians, as being narrow-minded, and and they're not able to uh, discuss things in a calm, objective kind of way. Well, that makes sense, given this, this model, if, if being keeping yourself certain is, is, is part of your salvation, like I'm certain enough that Jesus Christ is Lord and died and rose from the dead, and if I can just stay certain of that, well then, then, you know, I'm okay. Or maybe, depending on the kind of church package you bought into, uh, your view of baptism or your view of the church, your view of communion, your view of, of predestination, whatever. If being certain about those things is, is part of what it is for you to feel okay before God, well, then you're going to be resistant, highly resistant, to, to coming across information that might make you change your mind. And the stronger the argument against your view is, the matter you're going to get. When people, when, when it becomes part of our identity, that, that that we're right. Well, then, when when people confront that, you're you don't. In fact, there's been neurological studies on this. When people confront facts uh, that 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 confront passions that they hold, beliefs they hold passionately, their prefrontal lobe cortex, which is the rational part of the brain, it almost completely shuts down. And the amygdala, which controls our fight or flight reflex, it gets it, get, it erupts, and this is why people have trouble talking about uh, beliefs that that they're, they're passionate about. Uh, if they have opposing views, they normally just shout past each other. Uh, well, that's what happens when we make idols of our beliefs, um, and we end up getting our life from our rightness and from our sense of certainty, uh, the rightness of the beliefs we have about God, rather than getting our life from God. We're supposed to get all of our identity, our worth, our significance, you know, from, from what God thinks about us as revealed on the cross. And so I, I encourage people to make that the center of your faith. Know why you believe that and, and be confident enough to walk in that way. Um, 
and then and then organize all your other beliefs as as peripheral in comparison. You know, like I, I see it as sort of concentric circles uh, around that core belief. The, the only belief I ever get my identity from is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then outside of that comes you know, like the Nicene Creed, the core creeds of the church. Then outside of that come particular doctrines. You know, my view of free will, my view of this, that, and the other thing. And then outside of that, there's just sort of random opinions that you might have. Uh, but don't don't hold it as like all your beliefs are equally important because uh, they're not. That's what I call a house of cards model of faith. And people think that to be a Christian means I believe these 16 things and I've got to be right about these 16 things. Well, then you're going to be getting life from your rightness. And it's a kind of dangerous view to hold these days because it, all it takes is for one of those cards to get knocked out and the whole thing can come tumbling down. Find out one Bible story maybe is not the way you're taught. You were taught, you know, this maybe wasn't meant to be literal. And bam, the whole thing can come crumbling down. And it maybe was possible to hold that model of faith 100 years ago uh, when you could spend most of your life and not ever really cross paths or have a relationship with somebody who sees the world fundamentally different from you. But now in our pluralistic culture, uh, unless you intentionally close off your mind, uh, you're going to confront stuff that is very likely going to topple your house of cards. And and I, 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 I hate to see that happen. So many young people walk away from the faith for the dumbest of reasons. I just had a conversation with a guy on a plane. Um, I didn't just have it. I, it was some time ago, but he he, he saw I was reading a, a a book on God, and he says, "Oh, are you a Christian?" And I said, as I always say when I'm asked that question, "Well, it depends on what you mean by that word." Because <laughs> and I, I and I've had a lot of conversations loaded. that I wouldn't have had if I would have said yes, because they that comes with baggage. Um, so I said, "I'm a follower of Jesus." Uh, but then we got talking, and he says, you know, I, I was raised a Christian. I was really, really strong in my youth group and all that stuff. But then I went to the University of Minnesota, and I lost my uh, – a, a, a university, and I lost my faith. And I asked him why, and he says, well, I'm not sure I want to tell you because it might shake your faith, which kind of made me giggle. Um, I said, go ahead and you know, <laughs> have that. He goes, okay, well, you know – Archaeologists uh, have have pretty much determined that uh, the conquest in, in in the Book of Judges it didn't happen the way the Bible says it happened. Uh, it was a much more gradual process. Um, my response to him was, "And that's what destroyed your relationship with Jesus. Why would you leverage your relationship with Jesus on 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 how how much a story aligns with history or not?" Um, you know, that's a good question to wrestle with, and I'm happy to wrestle with it with, with you. But I wouldn't leverage, you know, your your whole. That's that's about one Bible story, uh, whereas your faith in Jesus uh, is 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 everything. And so many people walk away from the faith for things like that, and so I think it's just unfortunate. Well, you mentioned two things there I wanted to kind of follow up on. One, um, sort of the manifestation of your faith. For example, the school your church helped didn't ask what your doctrine was before you guys came over and helped read exactly. <laughs> They didn't care. And right. But the other part is I grew up in a Deep South tradition where it, it they did build a house of cards. Uh, if you don't accept um, some sort of literal number of days in creation, if you don't think— I mean, there are pastors. I've actually—you're not going to maybe believe this, but you've heard everything, too. I've heard pastors— at national conventions arguing over how there were dinosaurs on the ark. Yeah. It gets to the point where it becomes you have to buy it all, and if you don't, then you're out of the club and you don't buy it at all. And what's what's grown out of that, and I know this is not just 
but it is our deep core, you know, from the Great Awakening and two, and uh, is that hell becomes one of the central things to use. In fact, I grew up in churches that started with hell and worked their way back to Jesus. And if you look at a lot of the evangelical churches now, they're the largest, fastest growing, these 20,000, 30,000, whatever. It's still a lot of don't go to hell and then we'll work our way back to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a, a, an unfortunate, and that's the good news, right? Uh, it's like good news. You're going to hell if you don't agree with me. Uh, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's the model of faith I was given. Uh, I was told that if the world was created in six literal days and to add an even literal, then the whole Bible might as well be a book of lies. That's what my pastor said. And so I went to the University of Minnesota, and uh, it took about one semester for me to lose my faith. Um, and it took me a year to get it back, and it was the most miserable year of my life. But uh, um, it, it was just so, looking back on it, it's just so very, very, very unfortunate. Uh, ultimately, eternal life doesn't come down to believing the 16 true propositions. It comes down to, to you know, knowing the Father who was revealed in Jesus and, and, and knowing him in, in, a, in, a, in a loving way, in an experiential way. Um, and, and next to that, I, I wouldn't say everything else is unimportant, but it's 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 uh, relatively unimportant uh, because eternal life is this. And so, uh, yeah, I think we need to major in the major and minors in the minors. What, uh, what what do you think about hell? I mean, how how is your what, what is your understanding of hell? Well, um, it, it's I, I, I tend to I'll put it like this. I, I tend to it seems to me that the way the Bible normally talks about the fate of, of folks who will not repent is that they're let go into non-existence. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the wicked shall be as though they never were, it says in Obadiah uh, 16. Uh, and that, that, that's, that's the typical way that, that, that is, it, the most frequent way it's, it's spoken of. Um, now you have some, about six passages that can be interpreted as, as referring to eternal conscious torment. Uh, but um, I, I don't have any problems with those because I do believe that the, the, the uh, judgment is eternal, but it's eternal not in duration, but in consequence. Um, it's like in, in Hebrews 9, the author says that we've received an eternal redemption. But I don't think that means we'll, we'll be eternally in the process of being redeemed, because that would imply that we're eternally, eternal sinners. It, what he means is that once you're redeemed, it's forever. So also, I think what, what that, those, those passages are referring to, eternal destruction, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, um, that, that there's not going to be a second chance. Once this is done, it's irrevocable. Um, and, and so that tends to be um, my, the view I lean towards the most. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope the universalists are right. And there's some passages that that uh, seem to suggest that uh, that that as all were in Adam, so all will be in Christ. You know, uh, Romans five, and and First Corinthians fifteen, where he says that yeah, as all died in Adam, so all are alive in Christ. And so you have those kind of you know, all-encompassing passages. I hope the universe, the universal the universals are right, but um, I, I the war what I what I worry about with the universalism is that. The, there are a lot of warnings in the Bible. It's about the road you're heading down is a road that leads to destruction. You're going to forfeit eternal life. And and those those warnings 
uh, are there for a reason. You know, they must. They mean. They mean something. And and it's not good. And and so I, uh, even if I was a universalist, I would still warn about the the judgment because. Uh, it, it, it's it's much better to get eternal life now uh, than to go through that and have to learn it the hard way. Uh, and plus, as one who believes in free will, um, I, I don't think love can ever be coerced. And so I, I couldn't believe that, that there's a time where God says, okay, now everyone has to you know love me. Uh, if, if God could do that, he would have already done it. You know, he, he doesn't want anyone to perish. Um, and so I, I think that free agents can hold out. And, and if God sees that they get to a point where there's no longer any hope of them turning, that it's sin unto death, um, then, then I think God, with a grieving heart, just lets them go. It, it's sort of divine euthanasia. Because uh, if they were to continue to exist, it would be eternal suffering. But I, I, I don't think eternal suffering, I mean, there'd be no point to that. Uh, and that's my main problem with the traditional view of hell is it's pain for the sake of pain. God just inflicting pain out of sheer vengeance. Um, that he's not trying to teach him anything. You know, there's there's no hope of this ever ending. It's just eternal vindic- vindictive judgment. And uh, uh, the God that I see, Jesus, he, he prayed for the forgiveness of everybody with his last breath. Um, I can't reconcile the eternal conscious suffering with that picture of God that's given us in the crucified Christ. Yeah, that's interesting. I, the, you know, like you just said, the uh, concept, the older I get and the more I wrestle with the idea of an eternal active torture for a temporal sin, you know, it's, yeah, sort, of, yeah. it's, it's sort of an odd Where's the justice in that? Um, and, and then even if you soften it somewhat, like, you know, some folks would go say, well, no, God doesn't actively torture them. They just, you know, they made their bed and they're going to lie in it. And so it's just miserable. But God's still the one holding them in existence. You know, all things are held together by his his, his word. And so you have to behold that God's holding them in existence for the sheer purpose of having them be miserable. Uh, whatever, however you define hell, it's worse than non-existence. And, uh, uh so uh, I, I don't think there, there's any justice in even a Hitler, you know, after 10,000 years, wouldn't he kind of old, you know, hearing him scream? It's like, OK, let's move on. Well, the reason I asked that question, I, to, I asked it all the guests is because I had a friend who was a pastor and he had a teenager, a, a 14 and a half year old or a 15 year old in his church that had stolen a car and had been drinking and died. He'd been in the youth group and then drifted away. And the mother came and said, is my son in hell for two years of doing silly, you know, <laughs> making bad choices as a teenager? Their yeah. son died? Yeah. That's really, it, it's a... It's a, a a terrible thing to imagine. If I feel for people who believe that, um, uh, it, it's it's it just is excruciating. Especially, you know, for people who have committed suicide. I've had to deal with that a number of times in my ministry, and and there's a strange teaching that people who commit suicide automatically go to hell. And oh, does that torment parents who hold that view? And I try to show them that comes out of Dante, not the Bible. <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, it, it's murder. And murder's terrible, but there, there's no sin that can out—you can't out-sin the grace of God. Mm. And and however low you go, God's going to go lower. And, you know, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And and so I just tell people, look, at your, your loved one is in the hands of the, his creator or her creator who loves them infinitely more than you do and 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 won't do anything that uh, the, the, the most a loving parent would ever do is say, i got to let you go. Because uh, sometimes we have to do that. 
uh, and, and we do that with a grieving heart. But uh, to punish someone, would you punish one of your children eternally? Uh, I don't think so. Shifting gears just a tad, um, who are some of your big influences? I mean, writers or just mentors? Who have been big influences in your life? Well, it, it's been all dead authors. Uh, I, I never had uh, a mentor. I, I've heard that. I heard a, a guy give a talk on leadership one time, and he said he was listening to things that are true of every leader. This is true of every leader. And one of them was someone took you under your wing and mentored you. And I never had that. Uh, so it's, it's it's all been my reading. You know, so Soren Kierkegaard is, is there for mine, and, and C.S. Lewis been a big influence, and Jacques Ellul, uh Karl Barth. Uh, you know, those are the folks that have been among among many others. The most uh, have had the most impact on me. I think. Are those still the people you read now, or I mean? Oh, yeah, well, here and there. Um, I haven't read Kierkegaard for a couple of decades, uh, but oh yeah, actually I did. I picked up a, a book of his last year and read it. Um, but uh, I come back to Bart once in a while. Um, but uh, more recently, it's been Dallas Willard. Um, I just committed, uh, reread oh, Jurgen Moltmann has been a more recent influence. His, his book, The Crucified God, has been really important to me this last decade because I've been wrestling with uh, some of the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, taking a cross-centered interpretation of them. I have a book that will be coming out in, on April 1st called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's published by Fortress Press. And um, uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, I'm exploring how the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament take on a very different meaning if we interpret them through the lens of the cross. Uh, and Jurgen Moltmann was was helpful uh, uh, in his book, The Crucified God, in that. Uh, uh, Eberhard Jungel uh, is another author. I just reread a book of his called The God is the Mystery of the World, and it's all based on a cross-centered view of God. So th- th- those books have been uh, impactful. Okay. Uh, there's a couple more questions I ask all uh, all of my guests here on the Thinking God podcast. The first one you partially answered, I think, earlier when we were talking about the purpose of Scripture. But who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, well, he's a definitive, ultimate, unsurpassable reflection of God's very essence. He's the revealer of God, and uh, and because of, because of that, he's our Savior. And he's our Lord. Uh, He's our president. And so our only allegiance should be to him. And all of our allegiance should be to him. Um, And all of our trust uh, should be in him. That that he he reveals exactly what God's like and reveals exactly what God thinks about each one of us. And God cast that vote on Calvary that every person was worth dying for. Um, That's why Paul could say in in, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you know Jesus Christ and him crucified, you know all you need to know about God and about yourself and about other people and about the purpose of life. Uh, It sums it all up right there. So Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, reveals everything about God, reveals everything about us, uh, reveals God's will and God's purpose. Hmm. Basically, he's everything. What's the best advice anyone ever gave you? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, probably my dad, when I was 15, said, don't get a girl pregnant like I did. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty good advice. Uh, <laughs> that's the person that came to mind. Uh, you know, I... I uh, 
I, I had a, 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 a guy when I was teaching in school had to go through a little controversy and he gave some advice that was good. He said, don't get crucified on six inch crosses. Hmm. In other words, don't sweat the small stuff. And uh, that's proven to be really good advice for me. Um, just, uh, you know, let stuff roll, roll off you. You know, don't, 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 don't take. And, and in that is, I've learned that this, this is one of my most fundamental life principles. And that is, I want to every day get all my life from Jesus Christ. And, and by life, I mean my sense of worth and significance and security and well-being. Um, all the core needs met through Jesus Christ, because if I don't get it from him, I'm going to have to get it from other sources. And the number one option out there is to get it from what people think about me. And if what people think about you is, is, is a core value of yours, well, then you are going to get crucified on six inch crosses. You know, if, if people don't like you or they say nasty stuff about you, you're going to get all bent out of shape. So I make it a, a center, center goal of my life is to always be getting all my worth and life from Jesus Christ. So I don't have to be getting crucified on six inch crosses. Criticisms can roll right off you. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, and last, this is a little lighter. What or who makes you laugh? What or who makes me laugh? Um, uh, my wife and my dog, and especially when they're together. <laughs> uh, my, my wife, Shelly, she's so adorable with our dog. Uh, and they're just hilarious. And we've got a funny dog. And she, she you know, I, I never saw the uh, just the, the beauty and the fun in animals until I married her. And, and she just has this delight and it finds the quirkiest things about animals and just thinks they're funny. And, and, and so she's really brought that out of me. And so I, I sometimes just laugh. <laughs> I see her playing with our dog. And you mentioned your, your next book, Crucifixion of the Warrior Gods coming out in April. April 1st, and that's not an April Fool's joke, I hope. <laughs> what else are you working on now? What's next for, for Greg Boyd? Well, after that, there's going to be a, a popular version. The, the Chris Fiction of the Warrior Gods is a very academic book. Uh, then I, I have a popular version coming out uh, on August 1st, um, uh, also by Fortress Press. And then after that, I'm going to get back to a project that I've been working on for, oh, 20 years. I, 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 it actually, okay, it was scheduled to be published in 2003 ah. as, as the third book in a trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you talk about being uh, a little bit uh, uh, overdue, uh, but it's a massive project. And, and, and uh, it's, it's um, I was going to call it the myth of the blueprint, uh, where I'm, I'm tracing the uh, uh, the uh, the, 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 the way that, that uh, Greek philosophy influenced early Christian thinking uh, in, a, in, a, in a direction that moves it away from Jesus. Um, and, and, and this is where we get all this, the idea that God is, uh, the classical view of God is uh, that God is beyond any kind of, he's not affected by us. Uh, nothing impacts him. He never suffers. Uh, he exists in a timeless now. And so he doesn't move along with us in sequence. And and uh, and everything is predetermined, and that that comes out of Saint Augustine in, in the fourth century. Um, well, I, I'm trying to argue that all of those elements uh, derive not from the Bible, but from uh, Hellenistic uh, philosophical sources, going back to the pre-Socratic philosophers. So it's a massive project, which is why I keep on postponing it. I mean, I, I've got all my research done, although I'll probably have to now reopen that because it's been 10 years since I've researched it because I've been busy writing this other book. But um, uh, I, I, hopefully I won't get distracted this time and I'll actually get the stupid thing done. 
I believe you will. Uh, Greg, I really appreciate your time today. I appreciate your passion and your intellect and the, the, the work you're doing. And uh, I just pray that you'll be blessed as you go forward with it, man. I appreciate that, Greg. Thanks so much for having me out. All right. It's thanks for fun. coming on. Have a good God one. Bless. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it. We'll cut it right there. Thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Hey, shoot, shoot me an email when it's going to be uh, aired, and I'll uh, give it a little blurb. Thanks so much. I'll do that. Appreciate it. Take care, man. Have a good one, Greg. Bye. Bye-bye. Greg Boyd is... Uh, a really interesting and important voice. And if you haven't read any of his books or listened to his podcast or his weekly sermons, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, and if you haven't listened to some of the other Thinking God podcasts, l- listen back over. You can go to iTunes, Google Play. It's also available at Podbean. Thinkinggod.com has it. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to miss if you want to listen to it. We've had some great guests, and I'm not going to start listening, listen, listing all of them now because I'll leave somebody out, but you will enjoy hearing what some of those folks have to say, and I have learned a lot from talking to those folks. Hope you'll join me here again next time on the Thinking God podcast. Until then, get out and do something to make the world a better place. Yeah.